Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Haram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of today's podcast. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. If you've probably already guessed, judging by the intro of the episode, as well as by the name of the episode, today's episode will focus on the aspects of Muhammad Ali's life, as well as his role in Muslim history. Since this is a past and present heroes episode, I'll be focusing mainly on just specific details that I found that were interesting on Muhammad Ali's life so that we can really get a better understanding of his role within Muslim history as well as his legacy in Muslim history. And of course, like the previous one, uh, like the previous episode, sorry, on past and present heroes, I won't be breaking down his entire life, but I'll just focus on little snippets that I thought were interesting and things that maybe we should really reflect on. And if you haven't already, I did make a previous episode on past and present heroes where I focused on the life of Salahuddin and his role uh, in Muslim uh, history. And before we get into the episode, I first wanted to make two points. And the first was why I wanted to make past and present heroes episodes. And I don't think I really explained this in in the first episode on Salahuddin, which, by the way, if you go through the episode list uh, on the podcast host or whatever podcast uh, homepage for this podcast, uh, you'll find it there. Um, But the reason that I wanted to make past and present heroes episodes was mainly because I wanted to kind of get into go into detail uh, and really explain or uh, inspect the lives of many Muslim heroes and sort of bring a greater understanding or knowledge of who they were. And one of the reasons was because when I was younger, I remember not really knowing that many Muslim heroes. And, you know, if you go to many Muslims, of course, they'll give you the traditional, you know, uh, the heroes of Islam being, you know, the Sahaba and, you know, the prophets and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But really, you know, when you're as a Muslim, I think you also kind of want to know about, you know, what did the Muslims who came after the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what did they do and what did they accomplish? And that's really what I want to get into with the past and present heroes episodes. I really want to get into uh, what the past heroes were and who the present heroes were uh, as well. And so in doing so, I will kind of go into detail about people like Muhammad Ali and Salahuddin. And hopefully after kind of going through some of the bigger names, I'll try to get into some of the smaller names, quote unquote, and some of the other people who've had an impact on Muslim history. And then the second point was that I wanted to announce or at least say that uh, I will be taking a break from the podcast for a while. Um, I won't be really posting any episodes after this one. So this will technically be the last episode for, I guess, the the first season or whatever you want to call it uh, for now. And the reason is because I just want to take some time um, to sort of take a step back from the podcast and really plan out, I guess, future episodes but also just take a break because I've been posting episodes now for a, f- a few months almost, uh, or sorry, for a few months. Uh, and it's just easier for me, I think, if I take a step back and I'm able to um, really put in more time and effort into planning out and uh, going into detail on future podcast episodes. So I'll be taking a break for most of uh, December and uh, for January, and I'll probably be releasing the first episode back uh, in February, uh, which will probably be like the first week of February. So it won't be that long of a break, but I'll be taking a bit of a break uh, just so that I can put more effort and detail 
uh, into the podcast. Now, with that being said, I think it's time to really get into uh, detail on who Muhammad Ali was and really understand uh, who this man, who is such a big name, and not just the Muslim world, but also throughout the world as well. Who was he and really what is his legacy? Muhammad Ali was born on January 17, 1942 to Cassius Clay, who was his father, and Odessa Clay, who was his mother, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he was named after, or sorry, his birth name was Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. Uh, and of course, this is before he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. And he was named after the 19th century abolitionist named Cassius Marcellus Clay, uh, who was against the use of slavery within America. So an abolitionist is someone who wanted to abolish uh, the use of slavery within America. And the abolitionist movement is much more complicated than that. But essentially, uh, they were people who opposed the use of slavery within America. So uh, many, uh, you know, many African Americans and whatnot throughout history have taken names of people like this because they were honoring, you know, the, the things that they had done for the African American community. Uh, and so, weirdly enough, uh, Muhammad Ali's original name, being Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr., uh, was named after someone who fought against an injustice, which, of course, uh, was exactly something that Muhammad Ali also did. So, you know, fighting injustices was literally in his name, even from when he was, you know, a young kid. Now, growing up in America at the time, of course, this is before the civil rights movement. So he was born in the 1940s when essentially uh, in America, black people and white people were not seen as equal uh, and where white people were allowed to do things that black people weren't. And so they had a segregated society. And so he grew up in a segregated society, especially in a place like Kentucky, and it really shaped his perspectives. And he had many stories about frustrations from being denied services or opportunities because he was black. And this is something that really shaped his early growth as a human being and as a person who fought against the civil injustices that many African Americans were facing, as well as many people in large within America. And so you can kind of see how his early development really kind of pushed him towards a life that really stood up for the civil rights of others as well. And two of the things that uh, I know doing my own research on him was that, you know, he often told a lot of people that the story of Emmett Till, and if you don't know who Emmett Till was, he was a 12-year-old boy who was lynched by two white people uh, in, um, I think it was in uh, the southern of America. I don't remember where in what state, uh, but it, it was in one of the, the southern states where he was lynched essentially because he spoke or he flirted with a, a white girl. And so then um, the, the white girl, uh, I don't know, alleged he did something or whatnot. And then the two white guys lynched him. And he was just a 12-year-old boy who was basically just killed. And then essentially what happened was that the two white men were allowed to walk free uh, because the courts at that time always assumed that basically the black person was guilty. And it was something that obviously was very shocking because Emmett Till was just a 12-year-old boy. He wasn't even a man yet, and he was lynched in basically public, and no one did anything about it. And it was something that really struck uh, you know, a deep uh, cut into Muhammad Ali, especially when he was a younger kid, because obviously he understood that as a young kid himself, that same thing could happen to him. So you can imagine the kind of impact that it has on you when you kind of have that idea in the back of your head. One misstep and you could get lynched and the people who lynch you 
could get away with it. And the second thing was, uh, I was reading this story about this one time where he was at a diner uh, and he was trying to, you know, order food. And the waitress walks up to him and says, you know, sorry, we don't serve black people. And he looks at the waitress and goes, no worries, I don't eat black people. Right. Because she was saying that we don't serve them as in we don't serve them as food. And he was saying, that's all right. I don't eat black people. I just want you to serve me food. But that was the kind of experience that he you know, went through as a young man in an area like Kentucky and in many parts of America where, you know, if you were black, you were just automatically denied service that just about everyone else was going to get. Now, many people know about his boxing career and many of his famous fights throughout his career and many of his accomplishments. But, you know, that's something that I feel like a lot of people talk about. And when I was reading about his history and about his past, I thought was really interesting was reading about how his boxing career actually began. And so I'm just going to sort of uh, paraphrase and narrate how his uh, boxing career actually begins. And so it begins because uh, at the age of 12, he had his bicycle stolen. And basically, while he was angry over uh, the you know the bicycle being stolen, from, from what I read was that it was somewhat of an expensive bicycle for the time. So understandably, he was quite upset about the fact that his bicycle was stolen. And he was quite upset, especially at the fact that he wasn't able to do anything about it. He was sort of Uh, publicly, I guess, venting his frustration. And he eventually told one officer by the name of Joe E. Martin about the theft. And he basically told the officer how if he ever met the person who stole his bike, he'd really punch them in the face and, you know, really hit them really hard and kind of go at them. Now, Joe, being an officer, responded that rather than going out and sort of hunting down the person who stole his bike, he should first try to learn how to actually fight. And he basically told Muhammad Ali uh, to learn how to box. And really, that's what pushed Muhammad Ali to become a boxer. He actually wanted to avenge his stolen bicycle because he thought that if I learn boxing, I'll learn how to fight and then I'll be able to defend what's mine. And so you can kind of see, you know, where his thought process comes in. And eventually Joe E. Martin, the police officer that he, uh, you know, he was talking to would eventually become Muhammad Ali's first coach and original boxing mentor. And he would also become a close friend over years uh, and a civil rights activist along with Muhammad Ali, even though Joe E. Martin himself was actually a white person and he was also a police officer. So I would probably assume uh, that that was probably uncommon at the time, especially in a state like Kentucky. And Joe would actually have a very impactful part in, in the young life of Muhammad Ali as the gym uh, that Muhammad Ali originally trained at was called Columbia Gym. And Columbia Gym was the only gym in Louisville, the area, the city that Muhammad Ali grew up in, that was not racially separated. So Columbia Gym was the only place in the entire city where black people and white people could actually, uh, you know, box together. Either than that, every other gym was racially separated. It was, it was either whites only or blacks only. And Columbia Gym was also owned by Joe E. Martin. So he was not only a person who kind of pushed and introduced boxing to Muhammad Ali, but he was also a person who allowed for that, uh, you know, the, the racial divide within America. He, he ignored it. He was a very, uh, I guess you would say, progressive person for his time. He was clearly very accepting of the idea of black people and white people boxing together, which again, in a state like Kentucky, was probably very, very rare. 
And although Muhammad Ali's boxing career actually begins around the 1960s, he was also an accomplished amateur boxer as he made his amateur boxing debut in 1954. And he won many awards within uh, Kentucky and Louisville itself. He was a very accomplished boxer within the United States. And he would actually go on to win the gold medal in the Olympic lightweight, lightweight division at the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome at the age of 18. So even before he became a professional, he was actually a very accomplished athlete and fighter. I mean, before he even turned the age of 20, he was already a gold medalist. That's quite the accomplishment and something that I feel doesn't get talked about enough. Like everyone talks about, you know, his big fights against Joe Fraser or George Foreman. uh, But really, you know, he from his very beginning really was just very good at boxing. He was a very, you know, accomplished man uh, even before he stepped into, you know, the professional ring. And eventually, Muhammad Ali would actually retire from boxing at the age of 39 in 1981. So he boxed from 1960 uh, and then eventually had sort of a break because of his opposition to the Vietnam War. And then he would box after returning from around the 1970s to the 1980s. And he, he eventually ended his career as a boxer with a total of 56 wins and 5 losses with 37 knockouts. Uh, I'm not a fan of boxing, but... I'm pretty sure that's pretty, pretty good. Now, moving on from boxing, I wanted to also focus, of course, on his connection to Islam and his journey in growing his faith. Because just as unique as his life was, his journey to Islam was just as unique. And so Muhammad Ali originally converts to Islam in 1964 or around that time. Uh, In some bios or some kind of profiles on him, I read that he sort of had accepted Islam before that or he'd sort of accepted the ideas of Islam, but he may not have actually fully converted uh, till 1964. However, and this is where, you know, I mentioned the interesting thing is he doesn't actually convert to traditional Islam, either through Sunni or Shia Islam. In fact, he actually originally converts to what is called the Nation of Islam. And the Nation of Islam is a American domestic group that was a black nationalist group that took the name of Islam, but didn't really teach traditional Islam. And the main idea behind the Nation of Islam was that essentially their version of Islam was the true quote-unquote religion of Africans and black people rather than Christianity, which they saw as being forced upon them due to slavery. So some of you may not know this, but many slaves were actually forced by their slave owners in America and across the world to become Christian because the Europeans at the time viewed any sort of non-Christian religion as being backwards and, you know, wrong. And so they forced a lot of these people, some of who were Muslim themselves, to become Christian. And so, of course, you know, for you know many African Americans, the idea of continuing to be Christian, a, re- a religion that they saw as being forced upon themselves, you know, they opposed. While a religion like Islam, they accepted because they saw that it connected more with you know the African people. Um, and I want to also make clear that the Nation of Islam um, has its own teachings that are not at all 
related to Islam. So don't think of them as Muslims um, because they really weren't. They were not a Muslim group. They were more a black nationalist group. And I'm not going to get into their specific teachings because trust me, if I do, you're going to start scratching your head because, and I mean this with all due respect, their teachings just don't make any sense. Like seriously. And, and many of their ideas, again, link with the idea of black nationalism and black supremacy. And yeah, they don't agree with Islam at all because, of course, as Muslims, we don't view racial differences like that. Of course, we view all people of all races as the same because we're all the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is not what the nation of Islam, uh, I guess, advocates. And so really, you know, they were not Muslim. But although he was a member of the nation of Islam, he still did have a strong connection to Islam and often quoted Islam and the power of belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, I read a story where one of the reasons why he had his strength and his power uh, as you know a fighter in the ring was because he believed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was on his side. And it's not so much that he thought that you know he was going to always be victorious because he was a Muslim, but he believed that you know with the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know what could stand in my way, right? Like he believed himself to be a, a practicing Muslim, so you know what could possibly stand in my way? And it was that sort of faith in him that really drove him to be as you know courageous or as strong as he was in the boxing ring. Now. Uh, although I, I did mention that he was a Muslim, I, I wanted to point out that there there seems to be uh, you know a, a sort of a I guess a a pathway where or, or there seems to be sort of a conflict within him where uh, in reading about his religion, I feel like he really had a strong connection to traditional Islam, even though he was a part of the nation of Islam originally. Um, you know, one of the quotes that I found uh, was when he was justifying why uh, he was against the Vietnam War. And so for those of you who don't know, uh, the Vietnam War was happening around the 1960s and the Americans decided to uh, create a draft where they would draft all men not women, because women weren't allowed to go to war at this time, but men, all men were drafted to go to war. And so basically, if your name was called, you had to basically drop everything you were doing, and you had to join the military and go fight and eventually probably die for your country. And so Muhammad Ali, of course, opposed this. And and I'll get into this a bit later, but he's quoted as saying, uh, war, and essentially, Muhammad Ali was against this. And I'm just going to quote him here. He says... War is against the teachings of the Holy Quran. I'm not trying to dodge the draft. We, Muslims, are not supposed to take part in no wars unless declared by Allah or his messenger. And he said this in 1966 when he originally started to oppose uh, the draft and the Vietnam War. So interestingly, although he is part of the nation of Islam, and he, you know, he's maybe not part of a traditional sect or a traditional part of Islam, he's using uh, what I would say is, you know, the ideas of Islam or he, his connection to the faith or the teachings of Islam uh, is very strong. And you can kind of see it in the quote, right? He was a person who understood that, you know, wars and recklessly going to war with people, you know, that's not something that has anything to do 
with Islam. And so eventually he would actually convert to Sunni Islam in the 1970s after many former members of the Nation of Islam actually accepted Sunni Islam as well. So the Nation of Islam was very big in the 1960s. But eventually what happens is that ironically enough, Many of those members became so Muslim and they, and they started to accept and read the Quran so much. They started to seek the connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much that they actually converted to Sunni Islam because they realized that A, the nation of Islam was not Islam and that the real Islam was of course in Sunni Islam or, or you know Sunni Shia, whatever Islam, right? They, they looked at the nation of Islam and said, you know what? Like that's actually wrong. The real Islam is over there. And the real Islam is the one that's practiced by those people, not the nation of Islam. And I always think that this is so funny, right? Also, also, um, not to ignore this, but a big part of this would have also been because in 1964, Malcolm X actually accepts Sunni Islam as well. So if a man like Malcolm X publicly says, hey, you know, this thing, Sunni Islam, uh, this is the real Islam, we should follow this, you can imagine that there was a lot of people who followed Malcolm X as well, right? And so you can kind of see how interesting it is that these are people who, part of the nation of Islam, were you know teaching things about black nationalism and black supremacy, things that Islam is totally against. Yet, yet through all of that, right, somehow Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala led them right back to the actual faith because Right, like I was saying about their, their, his quote about why he opposed the Vietnam War, although he followed the nation of Islam, in my opinion, I feel that his faith was pure. That his faith, you know, and of course, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but I feel that his faith was pure because he truly believed in the Quran. He truly believed in the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi It was just that he was being misled by the nation of Islam. But then once he's exposed to the real Islam, to the real teachings of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi he accepts it because his faith was pure. And later in his life, he would really reflect on his time in the nation of Islam. And he really did give some good insight as to, you know, why he joined the nation of Islam originally. And he is... He's quoted as saying, uh, and I quote, uh, The nation of Islam taught me that white people were devils. I don't believe that now. He said this in a 2004 biography. Uh, and he said, in fact, I never really believed that. But when I was young, I had seen and heard so many horrible stories about the white man that this made me stop and listen. He's talking about the nation of Islam. So really, you know, what is connected to the nation of Islam wasn't really to do with Islam. It was more to do with the fact that he grew up in a society that was segregated, where white people would be allowed to do many things that black people were not allowed to do. And you can imagine that growing up in a world, or in a society essentially, that says to you, you are lesser than me, me being the white person, you can understand why something like the Nation of Islam really attracts a guy like him. The Nation of Islam basically just made him feel empowered. And he only knew of a world that was essentially divided by race and skin color. But of course, with Islam, that changes him because Islam teaches him, like it taught Malcolm X, that all races are equal because that's the true teachings of what our religion is. Brings. And I think that's just such an interesting part of his life, 
right? Is that, you know, he was brought into Islam maybe in a wrong way, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala led him to the right thing in, in the end because in my opinion, of course, his faith was pure. And he would also, of course, become, you know, a very, uh, advo- a very big advocate for the Muslim community. And in response to a lot of acts of terrorism, especially after 9-11, uh, Muhammad Ali was quoted as saying, I am a Muslim and there is nothing Islamic about killing innocent people in Paris, San, Bern- San Bernardino or anywhere else in the world. True Muslims know that the ruthless violence of the so-called Islamic jihadists goes against the very tenets of our religion. Now, I want you to compare that to the quote that I said before about the Nation of Islam's teachings, and you can really see the growth in his faith. You know, when he first joins the Nation of Islam, he's taught all these things about white people are devils, about how, you know, you should invoke violence against white people. You know, black people deserve, uh, you know, independence from all other races, no matter what. And now, you know, he's saying about how in Islam, there's no such thing as, you know, killing innocents or hurting others. That's just such a wrong thing to do. And I think that that's something that is, you know, really stood out to me when reading about his, uh, you know, his growth as a person in that, you know, his faith was always something that was growing. He wasn't just, you know, a good Muslim from the very beginning. I think, you know, sometimes when we learn about past and present heroes, we think about them as just being this amazing Muslim from the day they were born. But really, it's not like that. It's not that simple. He grew more the more he experienced the world. The more he allowed his faith to grow, the more he grew as well. And I think that that's just so great to learn about him because he wasn't the perfect Muslim and he would probably admit to you that, but he learned from his mistakes. And that's something that I really take away from when learning about Muhammad Ali. He wasn't perfect as a Muslim, but he let his religion grow. And I think that that's just something that, you know, we as well, learning from him, we should take that into uh, we should take that into consideration as well. Now, aside from his faith, he was, of course, well known for his activism. And I wanted to focus on you know two kind of points of his activism. The first that I wanted to focus on was his opposition to the Vietnam War that I mentioned before, as well as I'll focus then after that, I'll focus on what makes him more than just a black or an American icon. And this will focus more on sort of his international activism. So again, to begin by focusing on his activism towards the Vietnam War, this was of course one of the most famous acts of protest. And it was something that essentially made him a legacy that I think has really been unmatched by any sort of athlete or celebrity in quite some time. And so how this activism begins was his refusal to be drafted into the U.S. Army to fight in the Vietnam War in the 1960s. And in the 1960s, he was around 25 years old at this time. So he was actually quite young. He was around, um, you know, he he was around my age, actually. Uh, I probably just told everyone what my age was there. Uh, But um, he was around that uh, age. So he was quite young. And as you can imagine, you know, being in the prime of your career or prime of your life, even, why would you want to go fight in a war in Vietnam, you know, a country that's all the way on the other side of the world and in a war that really you didn't want to be a part of anyways. And the Vietnam War itself was quite controversial even before, you know, the 1960s or or sorry, I should say even before Muhammad Ali started to oppose it. Uh, it was quite 
controversial because number one, a lot of Americans really question why America was in Vietnam in the first place. Because originally it was sold as if they were countering communism. But eventually it sort of became a, a weird war where, well, you know, there was no end in sight. And so people were kind of confused as to why they were fighting in the first place. And then, of course, with the Vietnam War, the casualties and the impact that it had was just rising. So many people were, you know, so many young Americans were dying. So many, you know, men would come back and they'd have horror stories of the things that they experienced in Vietnam. So, yes, you know, the opposition was growing a lot, but Muhammad Ali was one of the main faces to the opposition of the Vietnam War. And, you know, there's many things that I can say about why he opposed it, but Muhammad Ali, as always, in the most Muhammad Ali way possible, eloquently described his opposition to being drafted and fighting in the Vietnam War in what I think is one of his most famous quotes. And I quote, he says, on the Vietnam War, My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud from a big, powerful America. He'd explained two years earlier, and shoot them for what? They never called me the N-word. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality. They didn't rape and kill my mother and father. Shoot them for what? How can I shoot them poor people? Just take me to jail. So he was referring, of course, with they, he was referring to the people of Vietnam. And he was referring to the fact that, you know, he didn't see any reason to kill the Vietnamese. And he also mentions, and I want to just clarify this, he, he mentions about them robbing, uh, you know, they robbing me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. He's referring to what a lot of slaves went through. So they robbed them of his nationality because many black people were taken from their countries and then forced to forget all their culture. So they were robbed of their nationality and then raping and killing his mother and father. That didn't actually happen. Um, but from what I, uh, from what I'm assuming is that he's talking about the fact that um, a lot of black uh, or a lot of African slaves were often raped and killed by their slave owners quite recklessly because of how little the white slave owners actually considered the lives of African slaves. And so really what this quote stands out is that he's talking about how he doesn't want to kill the Vietnamese because they never called him the N-word and they never lynched him and they didn't put no dogs on him either. And that's really powerful because what he's saying is, why should I kill the Vietnamese? Like the Vietnamese are just doing what? All they're doing is opposing America. Well, on the other hand, you have white Americans within America who don't think I'm equal to them. Why should I go die for them? Why should I go fight a war where I might get shot, I might lose a limb? For, to come home to what? To come home to a country, even though I'll die for that country, that country still doesn't think I'm equal to it. That country still thinks that I'm a second-class citizen. Why should I do that? Why should I kill this poor Vietnamese who's probably just trying to make a life for themselves just because they don't like what America's giving them and so they're fighting back against America? And so because of that, that you know they should die? 
you know, you can see the levels as to what he's saying. And, and, you know, a lot of people just saw him as a boxer. But I think what this quote really shows is that he was quite the intellectual. He was a very, very smart kid. And I can't stress this enough, by the way. He, he's not like in his 40s right now. In the 1960s, again, he was only 25. Like he's a very young kid right now, or, or young man, I should say. And he's a young man who's basically by himself. And he's opposing the entire American government. And, you know, the, the idea the American government was putting out that they should go fight in Vietnam. And he's doing this basically all by himself because there's no social media right now. There's no people tweeting out in his support. Yes, there was, you know, people who supported him like Martin Luther King Jr. and other famous black activists. But really, at the end of the day, he's really by himself right now. And he's opposing the entire government. Like, that's just amazing to really think about. Now, of course, for every action, there is a reaction. And the government was not happy at all that he opposed the Vietnam War and the draft so publicly. And so, of course, the government charged him uh, with, um, with uh, I, guess it's ref- I guess it's draft avoidance or whatever it is. I don't know what the actual quote-unquote crime is, but he was charged legally, uh, and he was taken to court. And on June 20th, 1967, he was sentenced to five years in prison and was fined $10,000, which was a lot of amount, obviously, in the 1960s. Uh, But he would eventually appeal his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, And in addition to the sentencing of five years, he was also uh, stripped of all of his boxing titles and he was banned uh, from boxing during his prime years as a boxer when he was 25. And so because he would be banned from boxing and would not be allowed to box, he would actually have to box more when he got older, which uh, may have led to some of his his health issues in his later life because rather than boxing when he was in his prime at you know the age of 25 he had to box when he was around his you know mid 30s and 40s where most people actually as boxers start to retire so he you know he definitely had a, a severe impact because of that although i don't know if his boxing in his later life actually led to some of his uh, you know health issues later on but Regardless, the government basically tried their hardest to silence and, you know, strip him of any sort of, I guess, honors that he had. Um, However, they seem to have forgotten that they weren't dealing with just about anyone. They were dealing with Muhammad Ali. And I guess they would start to learn just who they were dealing with. Because while he was appealing his case as it went all the way to the Supreme Court, where it would then actually be resolved in the Supreme Court in 1971. So for four years, right? So for four years, he fought uh, the sentencing that he was getting uh, by the American government. But during that time, he actually continued his opposition to the war and to the draft and he gained more support and attention. He would be a you know a public speaker who would go to universities or community events. And a lot of people started to attach to his cause because a lot of other people as well were against the Vietnam War because a lot of people were realizing that, you know, there's not many good things about this war. And then in addition to that, uh, you know, there was a lot of people that wanted to support Muhammad Ali because they agreed with what he was saying. 
And, you know, I want to go back to the quote that I mentioned before about his opposition to the Vietnam War, where he said, and I quote, War is against the teachings of the Holy Quran. I'm not trying to dodge the draft. We are not supposed to take part in no wars unless declared by Allah or his messenger. So Islam obviously played a big role in his refusal to go to war. And his argument with the Supreme Court was that he wasn't trying to avoid going to war, but rather his own beliefs, you know, his beliefs in that, uh, you know, what he was as a Muslim wouldn't allow him to actually kill another human being like that. And so that was one way to justify not joining the draft was to prove that you had some sort of either physical ailment or that you uh, had a you know a belief or religious one more specifically that didn't allow you to actually go to war and so that's what his argument was and of course eventually in 1971 he would get uh, the ruling by the supreme court that allowed him to be free uh, of going to the draft um, because of the fact of his religious beliefs as a Muslim. So not only not only does Islam drive the reason why he can't go to war, but Islam is also the reason that he is then protected from going to war. Kind of an interesting thing to think about. Now, however, I did mention that he did suffer uh, many you know, health issues because he had to prolong his career, but he also lost many millions of dollars because Rather than fighting in the ring from, you know, from 1961 to 1971, he was, of course, instead engaged in many legal battles. And so this was another reason why he had to continue his uh, fighting career, because he actually had to make up the money that he lost because of his legal battles. Now, just really reading about this, you know, you compare what he went through, the struggles that he went through, uh, and you really compare that to, to modern activism. And I mentioned this before on this topic about how there was no Twitter, there was no social media to back him up. There wasn't as much media coverage either because it was mainly, you know, domestic American media that was covering the problem, or, or I should say, sorry, uh, you know, his opposition to the American government. And yet he went alone and, and he did it all basically by himself originally. And yeah, there was people that supported him, but it was him, right? Like he was the one who started it. And he was the one who finished it. And you, you kind of look at modern activism. You look at, you know, modern athlete activism. And, you know, th there was a, a recent thing in the NBA uh, with some NBA players, specifically LeBron James, who's one of the bigger NBA players, where they were, you know, asked about uh, China's involvement in Hong Kong. Right. If you guys don't know, a few, I don't know, a few, not a few months, I guess a year ago, China basically took over Hong Kong, uh, which is a complicated area. And I'm not going to get into it, but essentially China took over Hong Kong and stripped Hong Kong of all of their democratic rights and forced them to become part of the communist Chinese government. Now, the people of Hong Kong really opposed this because they didn't want to be part of the Chinese government. And some of you probably saw there was mass protests. Now, some NBA players who had been very vocal about social activism during the George Floyd protests were asked, and many of them, uh, specifically LeBron James, said basically that, you know, it wasn't their issue to talk about. It wasn't their thing to talk about, that, you know, Hong Kong wasn't something that they should focus on, where then you compare it to, you know, Muhammad Ali, and you look at, 
you know, the burden that he went through and sort of, you know, the uh, the things that he, he had to go through that were really personal. You know, his activism wasn't just targeted through things like social media or, you know, doing things that everyone else agreed with. A lot of people did not agree with him. That's why he got almost sentenced to jail. And yet he went out and did it because that's really the kind of guy, you know, that he was. And then aside from this, you know, aside from just his activism within America, he was more than just a black or an American icon. And, you know, he was an icon to many people from around the world. And, you know, throughout his life, he had visited many parts of the world and he had shown his support for many different problems. You know, and, and he was quoted as saying later in his life that, and I quote, I've always wanted to be more than just a boxer more than just the three-time heavyweight champion. I wanted to use my fame and this face that everyone knows so well to help uplift and inspire people from around the world. Now, you compare that to what I was talking about, the NBA players and their kind of refusal to talk against China. And one of the reasons, of course, that they didn't want to talk against China was because China was such a big market where they could make a lot of money off of. But you look at Muhammad Ali, you know, he was someone who wasn't afraid to speak his mind, even if it meant losing millions of dollars in boxing endorsements and millions of dollars that he could earn while fighting as a boxer. He wasn't afraid of that. And, and of course, I'm not trying to shame anyone. I'm not trying to shame any, you know, NBA players or any modern activists or anything like that. All I'm saying is that this is what made Muhammad Ali, you know, someone who was just so different than everyone else. You know, things that he did, the activism, his faith, his actions, his beliefs, they just seem so pure. They seem so, you know, original. They seem really like they are coming straight from his heart. And that, you know, he's not lying about who he is or who he wants to be. When you look at him, you know exactly who he is. And I think that's just another part that makes him such a great person because you can really see how he embodies, you know, the ideas of Islam and the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad that he used the faith or sorry, he used the the you know the rewards of his boxing career and his fame to do good for others. And later in his life, he would become a very you know, famous international person, not just because of boxing. And I'm just going to list off a few things. But he visited Palestine and he has shown basically continuously throughout his entire life, he showed support for the Palestinian cause multiple times. And multiple times throughout many issues that happened in Palestine, he was there and he was a main person who stood up. For many of the Palestinian people, he would often advocate and say that you know people misunderstand the issues in Palestine, and he was one of the very you know famous people. Uh, you know, a lot of people didn't talk about Palestine that way because they just saw you know some Palestinian people as terrorists. But he said no to that, and he really talked about a lot of the Palestinian causes. He was, of course, very active in Africa as well, and he supported multiple issues within Africa and voiced the concerns of some African leaders. And he was also a person who actually uh, went to South Africa during apartheid to help, or, or sorry, he didn't help in the apartheid struggle, or at least I don't know if he did, um, but I do know that he did meet with Nelson Mandela when he was released from prison. 
In addition, he also met with the Soviet president Lenoid uh, Brezhnev on, ja- on January 19, 1978 to help uh, dis- uh, defuse some Uh, ongoing tensions within the Cold War between the Soviets and America at that time. Uh, in addition to that, he'd also helped release. Uh, he'd also helped with the release of American hostages in Iraq in the 1990s. So he'd helped with the release because he had basically gone with the envoys to encourage the Iraqi government to allow the release of uh, American hostages, or, or I think it was the Iraqi government. It may not have been the Iraqi government. I could be wrong about that, but he did help with the release of some American hostages in Iraq. He was also an advocate for many issues for kids, and he always tried to help younger children in multiple ways. He was someone who often encouraged uh, you know, the education of young people, especially young girls. He encouraged you know, the uh, nutrition and Um, the well-being of many young children, the proper health care and well-being for young children as well. Uh, For example, he uh, visited Afghanistan in 2003 to promote goodwill in Afghanistan. He visited schools in Afghanistan uh, and he took pictures with people and encouraged the education of young women specifically. You know, he did a lot of things and he he fought for a lot of causes is what I hope uh, people are getting from, you know, the list that I, I listed is that he was a person who really did his best to make sure that he'd spend the rest of his life to use his fame and his fortune and, and his you know his his uh, rewards from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the best uh, of humankind and you know he mentioned a lot that he felt that this was uh, something that was crucial in his faith as well again linking back to his connection to Islam he really felt that charity in this way, to make sure to help as many people as you can, was something that was just so crucial to being a Muslim. And then on, on a personal note, uh, he would also become an advocate for Parkinson, Parkinson's disease, uh, which was something that he suffered in his later years. And so uh, Parkinson's was essentially a disease that affected a person's um, just well-being uh, physically, uh, I, I don't know what uh, you know. I don't know what the actual impacts of it are, but it, it really impacted his day-to-day life, and he became an advocate for further funding and research into it as well. And so this one was uh, a, 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 a you know an issue that obviously related to him specifically. But again, back to that theme where he uses his fame and his fortune, you know, for the better of so many other people as well. And again, really, what I hope people derive from learning about his activism uh, against you know the Vietnam War and later was that he was a man that was more than just a boxer you know many people maybe viewed him as, as this great boxer who could fight in the ring but he was more than that he, he really was a global citizen who tried to do his best not just because of his faith but because he truly believed in helping others And here's where I'd like to end today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode on Muhammad Ali and some aspects of his life that uh, I found that were interesting. But again, even though I did cover a bit of his life, I'd like to say that there's a lot of things that I didn't get a chance to cover. So even though I did go into detail here, I would really encourage you guys to go out and try to learn and do your own research about him because there's a lot of things, in my opinion, that really make this man very interesting. Not just 
to learn about, but also to really connect with in terms of his own connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam and his growth, like I mentioned, from being a Muslim in the nation of Islam to becoming a Sunni Muslim himself and becoming a very faithful practitioner of Islam. So please do go try to learn more about him. And as well as I hope you guys did enjoy today's episode and the things that I went through. Um, If you guys did enjoy it, please do remember to leave a five-star review on whatever podcast host that you are listening to this from. Uh, If I get good reviews on podcast hosts, it allows me to create more episodes and hopefully, inshallah, of course, it'll allow more people to listen to the podcast episodes as well. Uh, And as well as if you guys could go follow me on Instagram, it's Muslims in Your Backyard. I post podcast episode updates and um, other uh, posts as well. So please do go check me out on Instagram and remember to follow me. Um, And then I guess the last two things here, uh, of course, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I will not be posting an episode two weeks from now. I will be posting one probably in the beginning of February because I will be taking a break uh, just so that I can sort of plan out episodes in the future and so that I can put more effort and detail into the episodes. Um, And as well as, again, if... uh, Oh, one more thing as well. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, as always, please remember to share it with others so that they can listen to it and enjoy it as well. Um, And I guess that's pretty much it. And so I'll see you guys in the beginning of February, or I'll see you guys, I guess I will talk to you guys in the beginning of February, because I can't actually see you, Um, and we'll meet again then, so inshallah, and alafis, we'll meet again. (laughs) 